The following presentation was recorded at a Christian Light Education workshop. More information at clp.org. I'm just wondering what your uh, mindset is as you come to this class. Are you thinking of, of uh, maybe a set of wrenches with a grab handle on the top that you can walk out? And now we have these wrenches and we can take them to our student's desk and open the lid and <laughs> shut the lid. Now they have them. Well, it's not that simple. It's not going to be that simple. I, uh, I have such items at home. Um, these are concepts, overarching concepts. It's uh, the work of a year. It's the work of a lifetime, actually. And these things that we're going to be talking about are um, overarching things that don't happen at the snap of a finger. Now, the poem, I'd like to comment on it just a little bit. I have it on there uh, simply because, well, I enjoy the poem, and I think it has a good message for us. We live in a society that wants those quick fixes. We want that grab handle set of skills. And you see all the books out there that, you know, whatever, how to do this in three easy steps. And, uh, you know, the, the, there's a whole series of books on, you know, things for dummies, Windows for dummies, Excel for dummies, and so on. Um, it's it's kind of like let's boil it down to what we can get our hands and wrapped around real quick, a single sitting summary, and then we're good to go. Um, society likes that. And, and I do, too. Uh, one of my favorite books I, I saw titled along this line said, um, uh, How to Have a New Husband by Friday. <laughs> and, and that one I actually did open. And sure enough, on, mo- on Monday you work on this step to change him. And Tuesday it's this step. And, there, and, you know, and finally you get to Friday, and guess what? You have a new guy. Same guy, but new guy, you know. So it's not quite as perverted as it sounds, but anyway. This poem talks about the quick fix or the, maybe not the, just the quick fix, working on symptoms rather than causes. It's kind of easier to work on a symptom than it is a cause. See, here we had people falling off a cliff and people were saying, well, it's not the fall that hurts them. It's not the fact that they slipped off the cliff that's a problem. It's that shock down below. And so let's park the ambulance down below there, and then we can work on that symptom. And then some other people said, no, what we really need is let's stop this whole thing at its source. Let's stop the calls. I had my students memorize this. The core of this poem, I believe, is in the first few lines of the last stanza. Better guide well the young than reclaim them when old. The voice of true wisdom is calling. I think that resonates with us, doesn't it? To rescue the fallen is good, but tis best to prevent other people from falling. All right, well, let's get moving. That was sort of by way of introduction. We already know we teach the three R's at school, the reading, writing, arithmetic, and probably a few other things such as science and history and music and so on. Um, But today we're going to look at some other R's. In your school, I doubt whether there's any textbook that says on the spine service skills. We don't have those kind of books in our school. But we do try to not limit our lessons only to the textbook. I think you recognize that. I think you realize that. And we're going to talk about five other R's that school setting, the whole academic endeavor, provides a forum for these things to be communicated and taught. And let's not miss the opportunity to teach these things. Finally, if you're good in math, but you're an irresponsible individual and can't get out of bed in the morning, of what good is that knowledge to you? And so on. So we're going to talk about being proficient or help, maybe not being proficient, but at least helping to, to develop the concept of our reverence 
and our reality and responsibility and respect and relationships. These are the main points of this address about the service skills your students need. Granted, there are more, but we do have a schedule. And uh, after I present all these five individually, I would just kind of like to open it up and, and maybe you have a question, a comment, some highlighter work, some eraser work. Feel free. It'll be your time. As I go through this 5R topic, I'd like to share with you about another R. It was a teacher that had a definite hand in the weaving of the fabric of my life. His name was Ronald, Ronald Martin. He no longer lives. I'm curious, does anyone know Ronald Martin that was killed in Honduras a few years ago? Just Brother Chester and I. He was a wonderful, wonderful man of God. And even though my life ceased to have exchange with him as it did in former years, I still miss him. I think he was killed maybe... I don't know, at least three years ago. He was going around a curve on a motorcycle. Big truck came around the other way. There was no place for him to get away, and the truck was on his side of the road. Hit him, killed him, and kept on going. Well, Ronnie revealed to me in living characters reverence and reality and these other things we're going to be talking about. So I'd like to just give you some snapshots as I remember Ronnie. And if you would know him well, and if you would know me well, I'm sure you could see some repeating patterns. So great was his influence in my life. One other thing we better say before we get started is that we know, we know that we need this stuff as well as the students. And while it's more enjoyable to talk about the stuff our students need, <laughs> we need it ourselves. In John Milton's Gregory book, The Seven Laws of Teaching, law number one, law number one, and for a reason I believe it's number one, it says the teacher is the one who knows the lesson. And let's keep that in mind. In fact, some of the points here today I'm almost going to treat more uh, directed internally than actually helping our students do it because some of the stuff you can hardly teach directly, actively. You teach more indirectly. And does passively fit here? Sort of, kind of. I think you understand what I'm saying by example. So let's begin with the five R's. Reverence. We're thinking here of reverence for God, reverence for his word. And I think we know what reverence means. It means honor. It means respect. It means deference. I believe it's right and appropriate that whatever your school culture is, woven into that culture should be a beginning of the day of a reverence session. You may call it devotions. But somehow we ought to begin our day with reverence, at least a prayer, at least a prayer, and hopefully a song and a short lesson. Let's do this. It helps to teach our children reverence because how in the world do we expect people, our young people, to live a life of service to God by not providing them that moral framework of reverence? How the public schools are attempting to teach school in a moral vacuum is beyond me. You know the Bible and God have been taken out of the public school. But really when you stop and think about it, it's not really a moral vacuum. Out of school, God was taken and into that hole, mankind themselves have been put. It's been said that Charles Darwin took God out of our heads and Sigmund Freud came along and took God out of our conscience. What do we call this process? What do we call it humanism. And what's the result? Well, a humanistic and a profane generation. And there are parents today that say, that's okay. We're, we're fine with that. And there are Christian parents today that are okay with sending their children to public school. And I know all public schools are not created equal. I understand that. 
But folks, we need to stop, think. What's it doing for our reverence? What's it doing for our moral framework? The opposite of sacred is profane. Who does the Bible say was profane? Esau was profane. You remember, he sold his birthright for one morsel of meat, and afterward he regretted it. I got a question I'd like your response on, and you can think about this for just a little bit, but how does a 21st century Esau look like? Do we have him? Do, do, do you have him here in this county? Or, or the Okay. So how would you characterize, if you were given a black piece of construction paper and tear a silhouette, what would it, how would you make a silhouette of, of Esau uh, today? Um, for what will a person sell their birthright? today for what morsel of meat what gratification will get people off this reverence track and on to the wrong track before you characterize the 21st century esau let me just tell you a little bit about ronnie and reverence i went to school with him for two years before he was out of school we were about eight years apart i guess and the only time we saw each other in this large school really was during assembly times and before and after the school day, I have distinct recollection in my mind of how Ronnie looked during those reverence sessions that we were talking about, those devotional periods. He was sitting up straight. He was paying attention. He was turning to the scriptures. He was participating in the singing. And he was an example to me. And, and just looking at him wanted, made me want to be reverent. See, I went to church with him, too. And while the other young people were jostling each other and passing notes and looking at pictures and so forth in their Bibles and whatnot, Ronnie wasn't doing those things. He was sincere. He was true blue. I remember a time when I was playing in the play area and the upper grade was dismissed to go to music assembly. And I, I can have a very vivid picture of him carrying his books, <coughs> man on a mission, walking to the music assembly area while the rest of the students weren't acting like that. He was buried clutching his Bible, advancing now to his death. And as soon as I saw what, what, what earthly remains remained of Ronnie, as soon as I saw that and him clutching the Bible, I had to think of David's mighty men. You know, the one that slew a lion in a pit on a snowy day and another. The one that I had to think of is the one that couldn't let go of his sword after he had fought for so long all day, fought valiantly. He actually physically could not release his sword. And that's what I had to think about. And it was entirely appropriate that Ronnie was buried with his Bible because he ordered his life by it. The Bible was worn. And the things that were in that Bible were revealed in living characters. It was about reverence, see? Back to Esau. Esau, Jezebel. How would you characterize it? Fleshly. Fleshly. Okay, so we zoomed in once. Zoom in twice. <laughs> Can you get more specific, anyone? Piercings. Pardon? Piercings, tattoos. Oh, piercings and tattoos. You struggle with that in your school? No. Okay. <laughs> That's wonderful. All right, let's zoom in again. <laughs> uh, you're right. That's a good answer. So you want it for our school? Yes, for our settings. Me first. Me first. Do you have that in your school? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, what does the Bible say about me first? <laughs> okay, well, it's about God first, others first. I hope you sing the song J-O-Y, right? Jesus first, yourself, yourself last, others. That's good, that's good. Is there more? Sports. Sports. Are there sports crazes here in northern Indiana? Yes. Yes? Do you have them in your school? Um, stop, think. This is really reverence issues that we're talking about. It really, really is. The sports heroes of today are our idols. That's why they get paid so much. If it were up to me, I'd pay the farmers. I'm not a farmer either, but I'd pay the farmers. I mean, they really provide for our needs more than the sports heroes do. Pay them what the sports people are getting. That's good. We need to be careful about how much talk we have about sports. What else is part of American culture? Not only the love affair with sports, love affair with technology. technology. Is that a reverence issue? It can be. Right? What about America's love affair with uh, more? The car. The pickup truck. The Bible says that that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And that's an ouch. Especially when I consider the time that I was visiting at a good conservative Christian school. Dismissal time came. I went out with the students and stood on the porch and waited for the rides. And one of these pickup trucks came by that was totally ruined. Really big tires. I mean, you need a stepladder to get up in it. You know, it had smokestacks coming up through the, 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 the bed behind the cab. And on and on and on. All right? And that thing got the... It got the... More than just a nod, it got the whistles, all right? And you know who started all this approval, this whole worship thing? The teacher. Right? We ought to be alarmed, okay? But how do we get to that point that the teacher is the one saying, hey, boys, look at that truck. Look at that. That is a cool truck. How do we get to that point? These are things we need to be thinking about. And I know that we can't, we, we're not called as teachers, as parents to single-handedly change our community about some of these reverence issues. But we do have an influence, as I just clearly demonstrated. What about that diesel power magazine anyway, men? What about it? Is it okay? Well, but we need to pull trailers. Mm-hmm. I hear you. All right. What, men, here's an easier one. What about fashion magazines? Is it okay if our sisters are looking at fashion magazines? I hope not. But we're talking. But what's a common thread? Reverence issues. Love affair with good looks. How is it in your school with an eighth grade girl that let's say she weighs 125 pounds? Is she considered to be hopelessly fat? Uh, you know, think about it. Um, or how about obedience issues? When, let's suppose that the school board or the church authority, the parental authority, maybe, maybe they made some new uh, dress code issue. In our school, I had to work through this thing of printed jackets. It just didn't seem, it seemed like there was too much of this uh, happening. And, and while it, it could definitely be argued, hey, it doesn't mean anything, I was having conversations a little like this with our students. So this thing of American Eagle, this thing of um, Air Apostle, this thing of Hollister. What does that mean? Well, it, it means it's a really good jacket. Mm-hmm. But does it mean more than that? No, no. Okay, do you mind if I 
can we take it off? No, 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 we don't want to take it off. Well, why not? Well, I don't want to tear it off. Oh, so how about if the letters would be Sam's choice? Then. (laughs) Reverence issues, folks. Reverence issues. Let's not trick ourselves about this. Okay? Lunchtime conversations enter in here. Teachers, eat lunch with your students. And yes, enjoy your lunch. Enjoy the jokes. But think about reverence issues. Let's move on to reality. I think childhood is characterized by irresponsibility. Really. I don't say that in a negative way. But little babies, you know, what do they do when they're hungry? Scream. What do they do when they need change? Scream. Um, they're not responsible after all. And it gets a little bit older. Three-year-olds, we don't expect them to get out of bed at 6.30 in the morning and do chores. But childhood is characterized by irresponsibility. Um, A lack of understanding or a lack of concern with cause and effect. Sowing and reaping. But those that are in Christian service, they have a keen sense of reality. They're in touch with reality. And again, Ronnie was in touch with reality. In, in both the physical world and the spiritual world, I can think of illustration after illustration of this. Our, our uh, oh, where to go? I remember we had small engine class when I was in about seventh grade, and he gave he had the boys pair up, and he gave us an engine that was working, a lawnmower engine, and then we had to tear that thing apart into as many pieces as it would go, except the carburetor, and then put it all back together again. And it jolly well had to work because the reality was it was working when we got it. See. Right. Uh, I remember another time the, the school had installed a big whole house fan in each of the rooms, each of the classrooms. This was a large school, 160, 180 students. And it was nice to have the ventilation, but it was so noisy that we couldn't conduct classes. The, the shutter rattled and the engine growled. And, and so we talked about what do we do about this, and we had different ideas, go up there and try to tighten the shutter and mount it on rubber and all this sort of thing. And one morning we came to school... And it was like whisper quiet. And we boys were going over and checking. Yeah, the switch is on. It was even on high. And we're like, Ronnie, Brother Ronnie, what did you do? And he said, well, I went dumpster diving behind a carpet store. And I got a whole bunch of thick shag carpet, and I just lined the whole air plenum or duct with this thick carpet. He said, and we got chairs. We stood up on the chairs. Sure enough, all the rattles were still there, but the carpet was just swamping out the noise. Um, that's in touch with reality. But not only in the physical. He succeeded as a missionary, as a mission administrator in Honduras because he understood spiritual realities as well. And that's why he's missed so much. He could fix, yes, the broken faucets, but he could also get the broken heart in touch with the fixer, capital F. His whole bearing was in touch with reality. So look at Bill Gates' list as it talks about reality there on, the, on, on your handout. How is it in your classroom? Rule number one, how much effort do you put on being fair? Bill Gates says life is not fair. Get used to it. Now, surely we want to be fair. Surely so. But one, one uh, I taught at the Russian school the last uh, eight years that I taught, one of the dads came to me, and I guess he may have been coming from communism, but I think he had a point. He said, I don't know why you spend so much effort in trying to figure out who the dirty dog is, who the guilty dog is. He said, punish them all. 
He said, it'll save you time and they'll learn a whole lot more. <laughs> and he said, besides that, he said, you want to find one. When he said, likely there's a whole bunch of other partners in crime that are going to stay under the cover. Well, think about it. Fair in homework assignments. Yeah, we want to be fair in homework assignments, but not everybody can get the same results with the same amount of effort. And are we dealing with that somehow in our classrooms? Now, what about the, you know, that student that works and works and works and slaves and slaves and slaves and sweats and sweats and sweats and comes up with a 80%? And what about the student who hardly does anything, just going to move a little finger and they get a 95? Day after day after day after day. Well, God created us with different abilities, and Bill Gates says get used to it. I'm not saying I didn't like the way that came out there, but understand me. How about fair on the playground? What are you going to do when, a, when a, one of your students you know, whines, Teacher, these teams aren't one bit fair. Significant learning opportunity here, folks. Don't steal from the students to teach them something about reality. I did not say create unfair teams. Right? Bill Gates says get used to it. Being used to the fact that life isn't fair and being at rest with the fact that life isn't fair, that's a service skill your students need. It's part of being a responsible adult. And I have lots of stories I could tell you, but I don't think you really want to hear them. I'm sure you have lots of stories you could tell me, too, about how time and life wasn't fair to you. But really, really, it was probably good that it wasn't in the big picture. How was it in your classroom how is your classroom relating to rule number five in this concept of worthwhile work? Do your students talk about loser's job? My, my students talked about loser's job. It was sort of like word construction that they seemed to like to use. Garbage truck would drive by, loser's job. Wait a minute. Do you want to, do you want to live in a society that doesn't have garbage trucks? What about the person who washes dishes in a restaurant? I mean, that was really low on the totem pole. I like clean dishes. So does President Obama. All right? There is no such thing as a loser's job. That's a reality. Okay? I like this little poem. This is about reality. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. And you know the rest. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. What about those horseshoe nails in your classroom? And what I mean by that is what do you do with a student who left their whole backpack of homework at home? What are you going to do about that? Significant learning opportunity, right? Are you going to let reality do the teaching here? Are you going to let them get on the phone? Hey, Mom, I forgot my homework. Hey, we really got to have it. Your teacher's going to be mad. Wait a minute. Why not let the consequences do the teaching? Right? And I know why I didn't let the consequences do the teaching, because ultimately I was selfish. I wanted their book at school because of what it did to my day. Servants aren't selfish. Maybe, you're, maybe if you're intrigued with this idea, maybe you want to read the book Teaching with Love and Logic by Jim Fay. I'm assuming you know how to eat chicken and you know how to eat watermelon, meaning you can spit out seeds and throw away bones. And you have to do some of that with this book. 
But Mr. Fay develops this whole concept of letting the consequences do the teaching, putting the responsibility back on the shoulders of the person who made the situation the way it was in the first place, not stealing from the student those significant learning opportunities, not being the helicopter in that child's life that comes swooping in to rescue them out of the un undesirable situation. Um, here's one example from, from that book. Um, the school policy at the, at the school where Mr. Fay was principal said no money, no, no lunch. You don't bring your uh, lunch money, you don't get to munch or lunch, whatever. Um, but it did say you could have as, as many salads and veggies and all the naturally wrapped fruit that you wished. Well, this little second grade girl was perpetually forgetting her lunch money and the father became very upset. Typical helicopter type parent, he came swooping in there and tried to change school policy. Do you have that in your school? Um, that's okay, let's just work with it. And when the helicopter parent realized I can't get the principal to change the policy. He pulled out his wallet, threw $200 down, said, you buy lunch tickets for the rest of the day and you give, uh, for the rest of the year, and you give them to the teacher. That way when they're filing out for lunch, a teacher can always dispense the lunch ticket. Had he taken care of the problem? No. And Mr. Fay says, or thought, he says in his book, ah, that'll teach her. Which her? Well, teach a teacher, <laughs> right? What does it do for the student? Nothing. Nothing good. That student is destined only to learn the stuff that's in the textbooks at the school, not the broader life lessons that are available. How is it in, in your classroom relation to rule number four? If you think your teacher's tough, wait to get a boss. Do your students have a tough teacher? Are you okay with thinking about that? Or, and are you okay with the answer? Hmm. Is the answer to that question okay? How is it in your classroom as it relates to rule... Well, the one about the blame game. Rule six. If you mess up, it's not your parents' fault. And I'd like just to expand that a little bit. How is it in your classroom when it comes to playing the blame game? Bill Gates says if you mess up, it's not your parents' fault. We love to blame. The boy blames the girl, and the girl blames the boy. And the parents blame the children, and the children blame the parents. And let's get honest about it. The teacher blames the student, and the student blames the teacher. But it goes beyond the school setting. The Arab blames the Jew, and the Jew blames the Arab. And the truck driver drives, <laughs> blames the car driver, and the car driver blames the truck driver. And the people blame the politicians, and the politicians blame the people. Are you getting tired of this? <laughs> Well, at least there's one thing in which we're profoundly united, and that it's not my fault. <laughs> well, we teach our children responsibility. What, what point are we on now, number two or number three? I'm not sure. I think we're getting into number three. We teach them reality. We teach them responsibility by helping our children see the futility of the blame game. Really, folks, really, the only string that we can play well is our own. It's not other people's. It's hard work to change ourselves. It's hard work to accept responsibility. It's hard work. But you know what's harder work? Cha Did I say changing others? I meant to say it's hard work to change ourselves. It's harder work to change others. <laughs> right? um, how is it in your classroom as it relates to rule eight, grades? Do, do your students get the grades they deserve? Now, it's true that if the students failed the lesson, the teacher may have failed the student. But perhaps a failing grade is all that was justly earned. Give it. Give it. 
One of the developing experiences in my life is when I was in about the fourth or fifth grade, I got a paperback, and it was poorly done. It was a failing grade, and the teacher had written across the paper something like it read about like this. Jonathan! Big letters. Do you know what you lack? And in bigger letters, I mean, this was right over my work. Top half of the paper said, effort! Whoa. That made me what I am today. Okay. <laughs> was, it a good ex was it a good thing for me? Of course it was. Of course it was. I, it did not damage my tender little psych. I, I don't think so. <laughs> Are we getting the idea? Are your students learning responsibility because of your efforts? Let's go to... Reality, we were on. Let's go to responsibility a little bit more. I, I would just like to put a plea in with you teachers that if you want your job in a single word construction, it would simply be this. Keep students on task. Keep students on task. And on task does not mean boring a hole through an eraser with a pencil. Okay? Um, we're talking about the right task, but f folks, we teach students responsibility as we keep them on task. An on-task student gets his work done. An on-task student listens well when you're instructing. An on-class—I mean, sorry—an on-task student will bring his homework in the morning. The right things happen when we're on the right task. It, it's so beautifully simple. Right? Being on task is tough work, especially for first and second graders. And third and fourth graders. And fifth and sixth graders, right? <laughs> and you might as well finish it. But when I visit in classrooms, it's just interesting to see who's on task and who's not. And you know what? It pretty much divides between those who are succeeding and those who aren't really having a very good school experience. Right? This directly relates to this concept of responsibility. Ronnie was responsible. Let me tell you, what happened when he got out of school, I believe it was in the 10th grade, he was hired by an electrician brother in our church. And I remember I overheard a conversation where this one brother was saying that this brother who hired Ronnie got a really good deal when he hired Ronnie. And that was a little confusing to me because, well, I was only in about third grade. But another thing was is he hadn't even started working for him yet. And how could you know that before he worked that, he, that this brother got a really good deal? And so I asked my dad about it. I said, well, how could they say that? And my dad asked me, well, why do you think they said that? Well, I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. Well, he said, think about it. What is it about Ronnie? I'm not even sure if I didn't use that word, responsible, because he was responsible. Dad said, you're right. It's going to work out. And it did, because a few years later, I heard again, overheard a conversation. Boy, that brother really lost something when Ronnie committed to teach school. All right? And he did. And I'm the beneficiary for, for him losing Ronnie. Right? Another time, Ronnie had asked my dad Sunday morning if he can take me along on a bike ride out into the woods. A bunch of the youth boys were going to bike ride, and he just thought maybe I'd like to go along. Well, indeed, I would like to go along. I was shocked when my dad gave permission for me to go along because that was not characteristic of my father. And for good reason. The youth in that church were not exemplary for the most part. But when I thought about it, that it was Ronnie who had done the asking. 
then it made sense. So there we were. Me and my friend went along. We were about sixth or seventh grade at that time. We were we were treated like 18, 20, 22 year olds. We had to pedal very hard to keep up, and we were way back in the boonies. And then my friend flipped and cut himself all up and twisted his bicycle wheel. But before the dust had even settled, Ronnie was there with a first aid kit. Right? He patched up my friend, as good as new, as a storybook would say. And then he turned to the bicycle. Because the only way out was the same way that we had come in, pedaling. And he got his bicycle wheel straightened out. And that made an impression on me that here I am telling you about today, 30 years later. How is it in your classroom? Do you make self-management? Do you make responsibility attractive? There are really innovative programs that some teachers incorporate to get this done, like self-manager programs, a status that you can earn if you meet all the 25 checklist points that your teacher agrees, yes, you get 100% A+. Not the working at it or no, not the lowest level either. You have to get 100% A plus in all 25 items. I get my work done on time. And he even goes home. I make my bed in the morning and, I, you know, and the parents have to sign it. The principal has to sign it. Teacher has to sign it. And then you have the status of being a self-manager, which includes free restroom breaks, free water breaks, free tea on Fridays. I wanted to have beanbag chairs for story time, but the school board nixed that one. Um, <laughs> you get the idea. The point here is... Do, do you have, are you making self-management? Are you making, are there rewards for the responsible? There, there can be, and I think there ought to be, and, and, and on and on. Maybe it's just a little pin that they wear that says star student. Uh, you, you, want, you want to work with your school board on this. Um, we're, we're talking about self-seeing, self-starting, self-management, self-evaluating, self-motivating, self-deploying students. has to do with responsibility. I think we must move on because I wanted to hear from you. Let's go to respect and relationship. And I do have these together. Really, they do belong together. You can't have healthy relationships without having healthy respect. And when you have healthy respect, you have healthy relationships. And I, I could, uh, again, comment some. I'll, I'll try to abbreviate a bit about Ronnie and I. I remember his perpetual encouragement to me as I was a young teacher. He was more of a silent encourager. And when he did speak, it was golden uh, by way of direct encouragement. Um, but I know it was a lot his influence. It drew me into the job of teaching. I hadn't really dreamed of being a teacher. But the fact is, when I knew that he had done it, maybe I could too, and I respected Ronnie. See, and then when you respect a person, his values become yours. Um, it was he, a few years later, that I stood in front of a lectern at a teacher seminar, and he sat in, in the group. And it seemed so wrong. It seems so backward. And afterwards, I told Ronnie, I said, that was wrong. You should have been where I was, and I should have been where you were. And he was very gracious about it. He laughed. And in the process, he pushed me on a little. He did. Ronnie was a serving person, and it had a lot to do with respect and relationships. Those in service need good social skills and social grace. How do bullies make out in your school? Do you have them? Do they flourish? 
Be careful. Be careful. Moving on, I read recently that 80% of international missionaries come home before they intended because of relationship burnout. That's astounding. I, that, that was not a, an Anabaptist statistic. I'm not sure if we're ahead on that or not. 80% come home before they intended because of relationship burnout. There's respect and relationship issues here. Closely related to respect and relationships, and school will provide ample opportunity for both you and your students to do this, as that is apologize. Apologize. Learn. Have your students learn, and we ourselves need to learn how to sincerely apologize. There's no better time to learn it than now, whether we're 6 or 16 or 60, because it has to do with respect, has to do with relationships. I remember a principal one time um, gave very harsh criticism of a song that I had had the students practice for for a school program. And after I gave it, he sat there and listened to it. He came to me and he went up and down and back and forth all over that song saying it is taking our, our school in the wrong direction to introduce that kind of music. And I was standing there thinking, oh, wait a minute. You saw this song. You sat through practice sessions and you wait till now. I didn't say anything. A few days later, he came back to me. He said, uh, Jonathan, he said, I, I am sorry. He said, I, and in evaluating that song, he said, I, I, it was a personal distaste for it. He said, I would not have chosen that song because I don't like it. But he said, the things of which I was accusing you, he said, they weren't really right. And he said, it wasn't fair because he said, I did see that song before. Do I need to tell you that I respect him and that we had a working relationship? Of course we did. Or a father friend of mine told me that his upper grade boys came home from school with a non-too-flattering report about something the teacher had said. We teachers do a lot of talking, and sometimes we, we uh, spew up our screech, and sometimes we stick feet in our, in our mouth and so on. But something went wrong here. I don't know what it was. But the dad was that concerned that he got on the phone. He called Brother David. He said, Brother David, this is what my boys are saying happened at school today. Did that happen? And this is what Brother David said, according to the father. He said, Jake, as soon as I said that, I knew I shouldn't have said it. You've ever had that experience? And so he said, I apologized. But he said, it evidently didn't take care of it. He said, never mind that I apologize today. I can apologize again tomorrow. I don't know where the conversation went from there. But do you think my father, friend, Jake has a problem telling his upper grade boys, you respect Brother David. Mm. No, he doesn't have that problem at all. All right, we're kind of ending, open-ended here, but that's the way we want to enter this discussion. It's yours. Highlighters, erasers, questions, comments, anything. What time does this, uh, does this conclude? I always forget. Okay. You have 15 minutes, Brother Chester said. <laughs> I know, I fed you pretty fast there, and maybe what you need next is a soak cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jesse. The author, the, the author of the book, Teaching with Love and Logic, is by, uh, Jim Fay, F-A-Y. He has a whole array of material. He kind of almost built a career around the, this concept 
if you don't want to get the book, you can just get a CD that you can listen to in an hour, and and uh, it'll get you on on track. But our our school kind of adopted the Russian school that has sort of adopted this. All, all staff was on board with these concepts. And one time I was leading uh, the the as we called it there, the choir. And you see how this stand has these decorations. Well, there were some Christmas-related decorations on the lectern. And there was a first-grade boy standing right here, and he stepped forward just a little bit and started picking at these things. And so I shook my head no, and he fell back into line. A little while later, he was doing the same thing, and I shook my head no, and he fell back into line. But his teacher was also in the group. She got him and made him stand beside him for the rest of the singing period. Unknown to me, on the way back to class, she shunted him off into a detention room. I said, Joseph, you shouldn't have done that. And he says, yeah, I know. I wish I wouldn't have done it. Well, I said, she said, your ticket out of this room is coming up with a plan what you're going to do about it. Clunk. There went the door. I mean, just about that brusque. Just about. And this boy could stand it, okay? He was a first grader, but he had a very robust constitution. Okay. <laughs> so it was, that was great. That was a fine way to handle Joseph. Come back a few minutes later and, well, Joseph, did you figure out what you're going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? I'm going to say I'm sorry. Well, great. That's a good idea. Joseph, I'm glad you thought of that. What are you going to do for next time? I don't know. Well, I'm sure you can think of something. I've got to get back to the rest of the class now. We'll see. Oh, but don't you think I should come along? No, no, that's okay. Right now the most important thing is getting this figured out. Clunk. All right? Come back a few minutes later. Have any ideas, Joseph, what you're going to do about next time? No, I don't have any ideas. Wow. Too bad not to know, Joseph. I'm sure you can think of something. Now, right now I've got to get back to class. Well, don't, don't I need to get back to class? No, no. I mean, it's a tough case. You can tell them we're running it again next year. Right? You want to be careful. Sympathize, definitely. Definitely sympathize. But the result of that whole session, I got a note that Joseph made completely by himself. It said, Dear Mr. Jonathan, I'm sorry for, I don't remember, but the disturbance or whatever words he used. He apologized for it. He said, I hope I will never do it again. <laughs> and he had told his teacher he's going to stick his hand in his pocket or something like that when he's tempted. Okay. And he said, I'm glad uh, you're at this school. I'm glad I'm at this school. Love, Joseph. And I'm, I'm with you. Maybe he should have had his hands smacked. But if he puts his action plan into place, we don't need to smack Joseph's hands. Right? And what the other thing that happens with children is they grow up terribly fast. And it, it's, it's a matter of a few years. Joseph is going to have wheels under him. And there isn't going to be teacher there. There's not going to be mom there. In fact, this last summer, one of my school students killed himself. He had taken an Insta uh, Instagram picture of a speedometer, 104 miles an hour in town, and he came up on a curve, a curve I go past every day on my way to school, and he lost it. And he was thrown out of the car, and he wasn't living right. The name of the author was Jim Fay. <laughs> Sorry, I got wordy there. Is there some other thought that you want to discuss? If somebody wants to get that, uh, the, the particulars, he, CD is, um, the 
four steps to responsibility. Thank you, Brother Chester. That's exactly the one I was thinking of. The four steps to responsibility is the name of the CD. Spit out the bones. He, he's not necessarily a Christian man, but he was doing as good as he could in the public school sector. And really, I think it does dovetail with many Christian principles and what we want to be doing. Is there more? Well, we have time for a story. I'll be glad to read you a story. But I don't want to read it too soon. All right, what are some other answers uh, for the question? What are some other things we could be doing to help um, with this uh, beginning of the day reverence session? You have some ideas. I'm sure you do. Yes. I used the character first curriculum. I used it for years and years. It's just every day. It's right there helping me. I don't have to figure out what to do. I just I'd be glad to show some people what I use. Character first. Oh, character first. Um, since this is your school, Brother Chester, perhaps you could lay that on the on the table in your classroom. All right, there you go. Um, another thing that I thought of just as you were talking there is I enjoy getting just a snatch from a song and developing that. Our songs, we, we get to singing these things over and over and over, and we, we lose the, the impact is lost. Develop a thought from a song. I mean, a song so simple as Jesus loves me, this I know, can, can be developed with just a little bit of effort. And I, well, somebody came into our school, and they, they had a devotion on Jesus knows me, this I love. Um, and then we sang it that way. You had another? I think this is some of the bedrock stuff we got to be good because the most important thing about any person is his concept of God. And if he has no concept of reverence, we can almost mark it down where that young person is going. That's right. Are there more ideas? Yes. And so often I feel like I don't have a lot of devotions. Like I do music in the morning. That's my music class. And so if I do, if I go over that and just one little thought, explain a certain word that yes. you didn't understand. Yes. Uh, somehow just it just gives a little bit of yeah, inspiration for the memory. And it works on that reverence thing. Yeah, when we assign a memory passage, it better be explained. I remember my first grade teacher, on my very first memory assignment was Psalm 23, and she took a day, um, a verse a day, and just gave a brief explanation of what these verses mean. And, and that sticks with me today yet. Maybe it was because I was in that mode that anything she says is good. You know, a first grade will do anything and listen to anything. Um, but no, I, it's more than that. It is. Yes. One thing I'm doing this year, I don't have um, textbooks, is there's a Christian ethics um, book that CLT, or CLE has with their, their um, credits. Yes. And we're using that for devotional courses. Yes. Is it a... Isn't there, uh, isn't, doesn't it develop thoughts from the Proverbs? Is, yes. yes. Christian ethics book available from CLE. There's other there's other books out there that are starter thoughts for devotionals and or practically prepackaged. Any any titles that you care to share on that? I'm not thinking. Yes, Jesse. Daily strength 
daily strength for growing youth available from CLP. Okay. Yes, yes. I know those books now that you say written by Howard Bean, a hardcover book. My my own sons have have enjoyed those books. Say the two titles once more, if you would. That's it. Daily Truth for Godly Youth. Daily Strength for Growing Youth. Thank you. Yes. I remember when I was in school, one of the uh, one of my teachers, same one that wrote that I lack effort. Uh, she had a book, a devotional book about fighting giants, and she read it one year, and it was okay. It was kind of nice. I, I enjoyed it. But then the next year, she read the same book, and that time it was a complete bore. Yeah. And maybe that was because I lacked effort. <laughs> All right, anything else? Thank you. Thank you for this discussion. This is good, what we had in mind. For small children, I like to use um, Bible stories that I know by heart. Mm -hmm. They're just familiar. And I taught first and second grade for seven years, and so I had those, you know, those students to be in my room for two years. So I just started in Genesis, and I worked up until that group was gone. Yes, having a good core, a good library, mental library of Bible stories is priceless as relates to this stuff. Have you ever used flannel graphs? That's something that got okay. There some have. That was especially in my high school. <laughs> well, my high schoolers loved it. <laughs> but we did the whole school. But, but they, we had their attention too. The flannel graphs is something that sort of fell off the back of the wagon as this modern technology is raced on. Uh, but they're still available. You can you can get flannel graphs. It takes a long time to cut them all out, but it, it's it's worth it. It's worth it. It'd be good if your community, someone in your community, would have that set because Sunday school teachers call us and hey, can I borrow the flannel graph on this? And so, well, sure enough, help yourself. Another good book is the Twilight Stories. How many have read the Twilight Stories? All right, that is a book that I know some of my students heard twice, but it was backed by popular demand. It wasn't because, you know. I brought it in twice. That's a great book. I'd like to read you this story if I could because it's about Almanzo and Farmer Boy learning reality and responsibility. And I want you, I want you to listen. This, this is really, I, I think it's really, really a good story uh, demonstrating just a lot of different things about what we've been discussing. They were at the country fair, and without further, further preamble, here goes. There was a lemonade stain by the hitching posts. A man sold pink lemonade and nickel a glass and a crowd of town boys were standing around him. Cousin Frank was there. Omanzo had a drink at the town pump, but Frank said he was going to buy lemonade. He had a nickel. 
He walked up to the stand and bought a glass of the pink lemonade and drank it slowly. He smacked his lip and rubbed his stomach and said, Hmm, why don't you buy some? Where did you get the nickel? Almanzo asked. He had never had a nickel. Father gave him a penny every Sunday to put in the collection box in church, but he had never had any other money. My father gave it to me, Frank bragged loudly. My father gives me a nickel every time I ask him. Well, so would my father if I ask him, said Almanzo. Well, why don't you ask him? Frank did not believe that father would give Almanzo a nickel. Almanzo did not know whether father would or not. Because I don't want to, he said. He wouldn't give you that nickel, Frank said. Oh, he would too. I dare you to ask him, Frank said. The other boys were listening now. Almanzo put his hands in his pockets and said, I'd rather ask him only if I wanted to. Yeah, you're scared, Frank jeered. Double dare, double dare. Father was a little way down the street talking to Mr. Paddock, the wagon maker. Almanzo walked slowly toward them. He was faint-hearted, but he had to go. The nearer he got to father, the more he dreaded asking for a nickel. He had never before thought of doing such a thing. He was sure father would not give it to him. He waited till father stopped talking and looked at him. What is it, son? father asked. Almanzo was scared. A father, he said. Well, son? A father, Almanzo said again. Would you, would, would you uh, give me a, a nickel? He stood there while father and Mr. Paddock looked at him, and he wished he could get away. Finally, father asked, what for? Almanzo looked down at his moccasins and muttered, oh, well, Frank had a nickel, and he bought some pink lemonade. Well, father said slowly, if Frank treated you, it's only right you should treat him. Father put his hand in his pocket. Then he stopped and asked, did, did Frank treat you to pink lemonade? Almanzo wanted so badly to get the nickel that he nodded yes, but squirmed and said, no, father. Father looked at him a long time. Now, now Almanzo's going to learn responsibility and reality. Then he took out his wallet and opened it. He slowly took out a round, big, silver half dollar. And he asked, Almanzo, do you know what this is? It's a half dollar, Almanzo answered. Yes, but do you know what a half dollar is? Almanzo didn't know it was anything but a half dollar. It's work, son, father said. That's what money is. It's hard work. Mr. Paddock chuckled. The boy's too young, Wilder, he said. You can't make a youngster understand that. Almanzo is smarter than you think, said Father. Almanzo didn't understand at all. He wished he could get away, but Mr. Paddock was looking at Father just as Frank looked at Almanzo when he had double-dared him. And Father had said Almanzo was smart, so Almanzo tried to look like a smart boy. <laughs> father asked, Do you know how to raise potatoes, Almanzo? Yes, Almanzo said. Well, say you have a seed potato in the spring, what do you do with it? Cut it up, Almanzo said. Go on, son. Well, then you harrow. No, first you manure the field, then plow it. Then you harrow and mark the ground and plant the potatoes. Then you plant and hoe them twice. That's right, son. And then? Well, then you dig them and put them down in the cellar. Yes, and then you pick over them all winter, said father, and throw out all the little ones and the rotten ones. Come spring, you load them up and haul them here to Malone, and you sell them. And if you get a good price, son, how much do you get to show for all that work? How much do you get for half a bushel of potatoes? Half dollar, Almanzo said. Yes, said father, that's what's in this half dollar, Almanzo. The work that raised half a bushel of potatoes is in it. Almanzo looked at the round piece of money that father held up. Excuse me for going to overtime, but I don't see Pete around the corner. <laughs> 
It looks small compared to all that work. You can have it, Almanzo, Father said. Almanzo could hardly believe his ears. Father gave him the heavy half dollar. It's yours, said Father. You could buy a sucking pig with it if you want to. You could raise it, and it would raise a litter of pigs worth 4 or $5 a piece. Or you could trade that half dollar for lemonade and drink it up. You do as you want. It's your money. Almanzo forgot to say thank you. He went back to the boys quickly by the lemonade stand. The man was calling out, Step this way! Step this way! Ice-cold lemonade! Pink lemonade! <laughs> That's only the 20th part of a dollar. Frank asked Almanzo, Where's the nickel? He didn't give me a nickel, said Almanzo. And Frank yelled, Yeah, yeah, I told you he wouldn't. I told you so. He gave me a half dollar, said Almanzo. And we're getting to the end now. Real close. The boys wouldn't believe it till he showed them. They crowded around waiting to him to spend it. He showed it to them all and put it back in his pocket. I'm going to look around, he said, and buy me a good little sucking pig. I think it demonstrates how we really don't know how well we taught life skills, service skills, until that child is making decisions all on their own without our presence. God bless. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.